This is a sermon about hellfire and damnation. How many of you ever heard a sermon on hellfire and damnation? Well, today we're going to get a little hellfire. I don't, I don't know how much damnation you'll feel, but um, maybe I can make that work too. Um, how many of you have Irish descent? Any of you got Irish in your blood? I, say, hey, a few, I see a little bit of green in here. I got my green tie on, but I have no Irish in me at all. Um, you know, we usually think of, of St. Patrick's Day, we think of you know, green beer and pubs and, and nas- Irish nationalism and everything like that. But what we should be remembering is, is that St. Patrick was one of the saints that actually literally changed Europe. He was a slave, captured, sold to an Irishman. And in his slavery came to realize his greater slavery was that he was a slave to sin. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And after he escaped, went back to England, he became a priest. And then God called him to come back to Ireland because he knew the culture, he knew the language. And he knew that the area was divided up in little small fiefdoms in which they had a king in every one of them. And so he would go to each one of the kings and be able to speak their their language. And he would say, oh, great king. He said, do you know the magic that the kings of the rest of the world know that make them so great. And they would say, no, what is that? He said, it's found in this book. Let me teach you to read. And then he would teach them the Bible. And the word of God changed king after king after king after king until all of Ireland embraced Jesus Christ. His followers then went all over Scotland, all over England, eventually, the, the Dark Ages had begun. This was 400 BC. The Dark Ages had begun. Israel, the, the Europe had turned dark because, because of the Germanic tribes had driven all of Rome out. But these little monks from St. Patrick's work began to filtrate all over Europe and brought them back what they call the book and the plow. They taught them how to farm and they taught them how to read and they taught them the Bible. And it was the word of God that changed them. You see, this yesterday, I was invited by my friends, the Geodesists, to see a film preview of a documentary called The Moses Controversy. And it is a controversy because what's happening is in almost all the college campuses of America and the religion departments, they no longer believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Not only doubt it, they deny it. But it's the most important question that you could ever ask yourself. Because it does at least two things. First of all, it takes away credibility of Jesus Christ who said Moses wrote the Bible, the Old Testament part. But it does more than that. It denies the authenticity and the authority of the Bible itself. And that's what our story is about today. See, because the real issue, America sits on the fence today. It sits on the fence between two opinions. Am I going to go the way of the world and what I think, or am I going to go the way of God? The northern tribes of Israel sat on the fence, and most of them never got off. And because of it, they were sent away in slavery, and they never returned. 
never returned. Matt, last week, introduced us to Elijah. This week, I want to introduce you to Elijah's foe, who is King Ahab. And King Ahab, just a little bit about him in the two previous chapters. It says in chapter 16, verse 29, Now Abraham, son of Omri, became king over Israel. Remember, Israel and Judah are two divided kingdoms now. Two tribes of Israel in the south and ten tribes in the north. The northern tribes were called Israel, and the southern tribes called Judah. He reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. He did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. And it came about, now listen to this, I love the way the scripture says this, as if it had been a trivial thing. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of Sidon, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him, and then erected an altar for Baal and a house for Baal that he built in Samaria. And Ahab made the Asherah, which was another idol, and provoked the Lord God of Israel more than all the other kings that had gone before him. Baal was the god of lightning and rain, because lightning comes before rain, in order to fertilize the earth. And so Elijah steps up and says, no more rain. No more dew in the morning. And for three years, nothing. The controversy begins, and now the sparks are getting ready to fly. Stand with me as we'll read our passage. <clears throat> Beginning in the middle of the chapter, we have a, a lot to cover. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandment of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all to Israel to Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for the people, gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel and Elijah came near and said, how long will you limp? between two different opinions. How long will you waver, will you hesitate? But the word literally limp is better because it says how long will you be weak in your faith? And the people, notice this, did not answer him. In other words, if the Lord is Lord, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And they didn't answer. Then Elijah said, I am alone. I am left the prophets of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare and do the same. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, it is well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, and put, but put no fire to it. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which meant the evening offering. And there was no voice, 
No one answered and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made the, a trench around the altar so great that it would contain two seahs of seed, which is probably eight to 10 inches. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering, the wood. He said, do it a second time. They did a third time and they did. And the water ran around the altar, filled the trenches with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Answer, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are the Lord, God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. And then one passage from the New Testament, James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the one must not, that one must not suppose that he or she will receive anything from the Lord for you're double-minded and unstable in all your ways. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mount Carmel is probably has one of the most beautiful views in all of Israel. Paul and I stood there a few years ago looking out over that valley. Paul, what would you say comes to your mind when you see that view? It is a beautiful, beautiful place. It looks out over the Valley of Jezreel, of which Napoleon said, this is probably the greatest valley for a battle the world will ever see. And of course, Revelation 18 says that's where the battle of Armageddon will be fought, the last battle of the world. A place of war. And this is the war the spiritual war that we're talking about. The other thing that I think about whenever I think about that is it's one of the very few spots that you can say that this is where it happened. You can go to Israel and someone you can say it happened somewhere near here, but this is one of those places you can say it happened here. Because you look down and there's the river Kishon, just below where all the prophets were slain. That's the reason I love to go back to Israel is because it makes the Bible come alive. It's real. It actually happened right here, just as it was described a thousand or thousands of years ago. We'll go again one day, someday soon, 
And if you're interested, just talk to Paul or I. God does amazing things when the Bible becomes real to you. Now, Elijah was chosen at this particular time in history, and he chose Carmel because Carmel was a sacred place to the prophets of Baal. They had built a huge altar there, and it was their home court. And so God, through Elijah, says, okay, bring all the prophets of Baal, bring them up here, and let's set up uh, an altar and two sacrifices, and once we set it up here, don't put any fire on it, then we'll see who the God of, can provide fire for the sacrifice to them. After all, God is, Baal is the God of lightning. That should be no problem for him. And the people said, yes, that sounds great. We'll, we'll see. They didn't have any clue as to what was actually going to happen. But Elijah then spoke to the whole crowd, and this is the entire point of the whole passage right here in verse 21. And he says, how long will you limp? Will you be weak? Will you waver? Will you hesitate between believing whether God is God or Baal is God? And then he prays and he said, Lord, answer me so that these people will know you are God. And I love this. He says, and that you have turned their hearts back again. You see, Elijah's really not interested in them seeing a miracle. If any of you have ever experienced a miracle, what, you ha what happens is, is that you really forget them over time. Because other people say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So did it really happen? See, miracles are never what make us really have faith. They're just a step toward it. It's a commitment to what's behind the miracle that is what makes the difference in the Christian life. So he calls on fire and boom, lightning hits. Have you ever seen lightning hit? Have you ever been close enough to smell the smell? I thought hopefully most of you haven't. But what would you think if someone said lightning is going to fall and it's going to fall right here and boom, it does. And the people fell on their faces, I'm sure instantly. And said, yes, the Lord is God. He is God. And so Elijah says, now prove it. Grab every one of the prophets of Baal and take them down to the brook Kishon, Kishon and kill them. And they did. 450 of them, just like Jezebel had done a few months earlier. She had killed all the prophets of, Baal, of, of God, except for a few that were hidden. The rest of the chapter, Elijah now prays for rain and it deluged rain. At that point, Paul's going to pick up next week and take us into that last little section but I want you to ask a question. You've, you've read the story, heard the story. There's not much more that needs to be said about that. But you have to ask this, why do we have this story? You see, whenever you read a passage of Scripture, you always want to ask yourself this question. If we didn't have this story, what would we not know about God? 
What would be missing in my understanding about God? That's where you're going to know what's important about that passage of Scripture. But better yet, you want to ask, how does it point me to a solution? We know the solution is found in Jesus Christ. But so how does this point me that way? And we'll look at that in a moment. So what we see in this passage, the real reason Israel's troubled was not just simply because they were going after idols as bad as that was, but because the reason they went after idols is they had forgotten to go after God. You see, the very fact they didn't answer the question when Elijah said, how long will you waver? They didn't answer because they'd lost their first love if they ever had it. You see, when you get away from your love of Christ, you'll immediately find an idol. You'll immediately find an idol. The first thing we can realize is that the people of Israel were no different than we are today. They made their living by farming, and so therefore they needed the land to produce. And if you aren't following God, you're looking for every help you can get. So what happens is somebody comes along and says, oh, you know what? There's a God to fertility of the land. And if you pray and the lightning comes and that's his power, that'll certainly produce rain and the land will be more fertile. As a matter of fact, you can even go to the temple of Baal and you can participate in in immoral acts that will please the God of Baal because he's the God of fertility. That's how degraded it had become. We're always looking. Every generation raises up idols to take God's place. The very God who creates rain, the very God who brings blessings, but we will substitute something else, and any idol will suffice. See, that's the challenge of Elijah. It remains the same today. How long will we waver? How long will we, will we either trust God or will we trust something else? We trust in our own efforts, our own wisdom to make something work out. You see, the reason the choice exists is because we live in a fallen world. And what a fallen world does, because the earth has has suffered a curse at the fall, is that means that life doesn't turn out the way we want it to turn out. Things just don't always work the way we want them to work. People die when we don't want them to die. Car wrecks happen, illnesses happen. Families are changed. But because the world is this way, we're always faced then with a choice. And the choice is, will we turn to God or will we turn to something else? Will we turn to alcohol? Will we turn to drugs? Will we turn to porn? Will we turn to work and become a workaholic? So much so that we neglect our family and our needs and our friends. All those things can be idols. I read just the other day a great little devotional that Tim Keller has on the wisdom of God, just here in the book of the week, the month of March. And here's what he wrote, a prayer at the end of one of his little statements. And he says, Lord, like so many, I was naive about life. I did not think that I would ever have to choose between 
being comfortable and doing what is right. And he went on to say, but that's the world we live in now. Lord, give me enough joy in you to always choose the right thing rather than the easy thing. Secondly, we see in this passage God's incredible patience and faithfulness to his covenant. It's in the phrase, how long, how long will you waver? God was waiting and waiting and waiting. He is a patient God to an extent. Israel never did fully turn back to God. A few did. But as I said, the whole nation didn't, and eventually he brought judgment on the entire area and carried them away, and they never, ever returned. So what's the solution? How does this point us to Christ? Many ways, but one in particular, we realize this. Jesus faced a horrible, horrible choice in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another one of those places where you can say, it's pretty close to right where it happened. You can see it today. Gethsemane means wine press. It's where the large stone is rolled over the grapes and presses everything out of the grapes. And Jesus is feeling incredible pressure. And as a human, he says, God, is there any other way that this cup can be passed from me? You see, he knows the pain that he's going to face on that cross. You are the creator God. You could create something that could change the situation. But Lord, no. Not my will, but yours. You see, he didn't waver. He asked the question, but he didn't waver. Your will, Lord, not mine. And because he made that choice, we now have a choice. You see, that's the beauty of this. Jesus has done something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. And did he suffer? Yes, he did. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus looked past the pain to the victory. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that you and I would be free from our sin. That was the joy. You say, okay, I see that. But how does that help me? I mean, what does this do for my addiction? What does this do for my stressed family, for the relationships that aren't working out the way I want them to work out? What does this do for my loneliness? What does it do for my, and you can fill in the blank. We don't want to choose the easy way out and lose the blessing of God. But thankfully, you don't have to because Jesus chose the hard way out for you and for me. The first step to hope and help is to realize the difference in trying to live for Jesus rather than letting Jesus live through you. Huge difference. 
Many people start up saying, well, I want to be a Christian. I'm going to try to do Christian things. That's the wrong path. You see, the best definition of the Christian life I ever heard was this. The Christian life is the life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response to the Word of God. Did you get it? The Christian life is the life of Christ reproduced in you, the believer, by the power of the Holy Spirit as you are obedient to the Word of God. Amen. Thank you. Jesus, your prayer is, Jesus, I can't do this. Jesus said, I know it, but I can do it. I can do it in you and through you and with you. That's saying, not my will, but yours, O Lord. Bring your power and your strength to me. I need to rest in your strength. I need your peace. I need to know that it's there. See, it's not our efforts alone. It's a partnership with him. We're not passive. Did you hear what Keller said in his prayer? He said, Lord, give me your joy so that I will choose the right thing. You see, that's the partnership. Paul put it another way. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's the key, is learning that I don't depend on what I have and what my wisdom and what I in my own experience alone. I depend on Christ, and he's there for me. The Christian life isn't designed to make you a better person. It's designed to make you more confident in God. Will it work out perfectly? Maybe. Maybe not. Depends on how you define perfect. Because you see, God's ways are not always our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But they're always good. They're always good. He works out everything for the good. You see, this is the point of the Elijah story. God had to do something for these people that they wouldn't do for themselves to point them back to him. But even more so, it's the point of the gospel and the cross. God did something for us through Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. And that is, he took away the mastery of sin. Not only the penalty of sin, but the mastery of sin. That sin doesn't have to master us. Because as the life of Christ is reproduced in me, I begin to sense and see how the power of God in Christ begins to help me face the things that I don't know how to change. That I don't know what to do about. And let me finish then by pointing us to what the New Testament says in its own way. In James 5, James 1, 5 through 8. That wisdom is available to every person. Wisdom is available to every person. The passage puts it this way. If you lack wisdom... At let ask God who gives generously 
to all without reproach or holding back. It'll be given. But let it be done in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea that's tossed by the wind. And let that person not suppose that he or she will receive anything from the Lord because you're a double-minded person and that makes you unstable in all your ways. Wow. See, God provides the wisdom we need. If we trust his way and his will, the wisdom will come. If we don't and we waver, we'll be unstable. We forfeit the blessing that could be ours. So the question remains, oh Lord, how long will I waver? You know, it's a question I have to ask myself every day. Every day I'm facing something that I'm either going to trust God with or I'm not. Every day. Rather than the Moses controversy, it's the Elijah controversy. So Lord, how long will I sit on the fence? How long will I decide? God, bring your fire into my heart that I will want to choose you. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. The Christian life is the life of Christ reproduced in you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response when we get off the fence. Amen? Thank you, God, that you not only point out what we face, what every person has faced, but you also point us to the cross where Jesus has made it possible that we might have an escape for every idol we're tempted to choose. Bless that effort, and may we find the great wisdom and strength of God. In his name we pray, amen.